Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. Welcome to Hour 2 of Mornings with Carmen on this 1st of November. If you missed the first hour, you can pick it up later as a podcast at MyFaithRadio.com. Loved our conversation with Sheridan Boise as well as Adam Carrington, surveying some of the headline news of the day with each of them. Um, let Let me pivot here briefly to a comment um, on what COVID is doing to us and how it is changing us. The numbers um, are staggering. We're looking at 5 million deaths globally. Uh, We're looking at um, a weariness of talking about it. I recognize that. Um, I'm not sure that we have yet assessed the relational toll um, of COVID. And in part, that's because COVID is changing us and changing our relationships in ways that we don't often talk about. And so I wanted to highlight this um, this video that I saw at the end of last week related to the way that vaccine um, hesitancy or even conspiracy theories related to the vaccine are breaking down relationships. Um, and so I want to just talk briefly here about the relational toll of misinformation and disinformation specifically related to um, the way we're treating one another um, in relationship to the vaccine. And so you may have experienced it yourself. I guarantee you, you know, people who have the woman um, who testifies in this video has cancer um, and her husband threatened to divorce her if she got vaccinated, but she needs to get vaccinated in order to secure the treatments that she needs in relationship to her cancer. So she is immune compromised. Um, She has cancer and she needs to be vaccinated in order that she can get the life-saving treatments required to treat her cancer. And her husband um, is convinced that if she gets vaccinated, that the vaccine will, quote, leak to him and change his DNA, which is completely preposterous. Um, But he believes it. He so thoroughly believes it that he is willing to allow his wife to die of cancer and or divorce her if she gets vaccinated. And so if you have wondered just how far down the rabbit hole the conspiracy theories have gone in relationship to um, COVID-19 vaccines, they are now doing real harm to real people in real life. And so as Christians, as people who love the truth, as people who seek the truth, as people who speak the truth, as people who are willing to follow the truth wherever it leads, um, we must be honest about the reality we're now living in and the prevalence and purveyance of lies. And I'm not saying that everything that you've heard about the COVID vaccine is a lie. I am saying that we have to be people who care about the truth and we care more about the truth than anything else. So... I know it's difficult. I know it's costly. 
I also know there's no alternative. If we're going to be people who align ourselves with Jesus, who is the way and the truth and the life, um, then we are going to be people who find ourselves saying, here I stand, I can do no other. I am not going to compromise on the truth. So um, there are lots of threats. This one is from within um, and sometimes from within our own marriages and relationships. Joining us next to talk across a range of very real threats in the very real world is Elizabeth Newman. She's a former DHS uh, official specializing in extremist threats domestically and around the world. We'll be right back. Elizabeth Newman is a former Assistant Secretary of Counterterrorism and Threat Prevention at the Department of Homeland Security. She served in the Trump administration. Earlier, she served in the George W. Bush administration, managing President Bush's faith-based and community initiatives. She then worked to help implement the 2007 White House National Strategy for Information Sharing, and she's helped businesses with cybersecurity and risk assessments. Uh, she knows the threats that we faced internally and externally. I am delighted she's joining us today. Elizabeth Newman, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning, Carmen. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So um, I, I just want to set the globe before you and say, in your opinion, what are the range of threats that we face today? And maybe how, as Christians, do we engage in such a time as this? Uh, with a lot of prayer. Let's just start there, because um, even as I was uh, scanning the morning headlines, um, you know, it, it's just uh, it's a challenging time uh, globally. Everything that we're feeling um, domestically with COVID and an economy that's kind of starting to work, but then we have supply chain issues and inflationary issues um, that is exacerbated overseas and particularly in countries that are not as advanced as ours. Um, you have the president in uh, uh, Scotland, uh, this, uh, he was in Rome earlier, uh, doing these G20 conversations, the two countries you really need to come to the table to um, play by the, the, the norms of um, good, good countries, Russia and China. They don't really show up or they're there virtually, um, but that's kind of intentional. Uh, so it's just it's a challenging space um, uh, globally, uh, whether you're talking about great power competition or violent extremism. Um, prayer is definitely in <laughs> is definitely in the top priority for um, uh, for global threats. Yeah, I, I genuinely appreciate that you start there. Um, let's um, let's talk a little bit about the meeting uh, in in Rome and or the UN Climate Change Summit that's underway now in Scotland. When we talk about um, the world and the relationships in the world, I mean, are we moving forward or are we moving backward or sideways just in terms of, you know, America's posture and our sense of safety and security? Yeah, you know, it 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 does feel like um, we're making some progress compared to where we were for a couple of years, and and this is less about um, foreign policy. You, you know, whether you preferred uh, a Bush or a Trump or Obama or Biden policy, as much as the way in which the U.S. interacts with the world. Um, there was a period um, under the Trump administration where the world didn't 
quite know what was going to happen next. It created a lot of instability. Um, they would hear one thing from a Secretary of State or a Secretary of Defense, and then they'd see a tweet that would be the opposite. Um, and so that instability uh, made it difficult to have conversations with um, allies. And increasingly, a number of our threats, whether you know, when you look at something like climate change, it, you cannot go at that alone. You, you really do have to have a conversation globally, um, not only for uh, trying to make a dent in the problem, but if you unilaterally decide, well, we're going to um, take some drastic measures to reduce carbon emissions, well, that's going to affect your, your economy and your competitiveness. Uh, so you, you really need the rest of the globe to go, go along with you. Otherwise, you're, you're dom domestically speaking, you would um, be in hot water because your economy would suffer when everybody else is not following the same rules. So many of our challenges uh, require at, at least a conversation, if not collaboration, and when we had that instability of, of not really being sure where the U.S. stood on many things, it, it made it difficult. Um, now we, we have a, um, a leader in President Biden who uh, is, is very traditional in the way that um, he con conducts diplomacy. Um, and you see an effort to try to uh, reestablish some of those diplomatic conversations. In, in general, that's a good thing, um, but it's it's a very um, volatile world that we find ourselves in, at, with a lot of moving parts. Um, that uh, you know, that, this is where the policy comes in, where you might, you know, I personally might have some concerns with uh, some of his policy positions that may put the U.S. in in a challenging space in the future. So uh, I'll go back to prayer is important. <laughs> pray for our leaders, pray for them to have wisdom. Um, but it's a good thing that we're back at the table and having these conversations. All right, we're talking with Elizabeth Newman. We're going to continue our conversation uh, in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Continuing our conversation with Elizabeth Newman, former Assistant Secretary of Counterterrorism and Threat Prevention at the Department of Homeland Security. Um, Elizabeth, when we when we survey the challenges that we face um, internally in our own communities, internally here, domestically as a country, externally, I mean, external threats. I mean, some would point to the southern border. Some would point to China. Some would point to ISIS-K. Um, I think a lot of people would would point to cybersecurity um, mm -hmm. and uh, and sort of the <clears throat> the unseen and unseeable threats out there. When you when you make a threat assessment, let's let's distill down to like the local church level. If you're going to talk with a local church, how do they assess um, the threats that they face? you know, at, at a local level and then at a cyber level? And what do you tell them? I mean, how do you counsel them in terms of um, security at churches? I, I'm so thankful you brought this up, Carmen, because we just had some data released from the FBI. Um, they uh, usually publish this time of year for the year prior, so that would be 2020, about hate crimes. And in 2020, we saw an increase of hate crimes uh, committed uh, against all the variety of targets, but including um, houses of worship. Um, usually um, 
the preponderance of those tend to be synagogues and um, mosques or uh, Buddhist or Sikh temples. Um, but the uh, we have seen um, churches uh, be, be targets, and and of course, you know, everybody can remember some of the the more heinous. Uh, crimes um, in, in Texas um, and South Carolina. And uh, it just, it's a good time. Um, I'm not trying to scare anybody, but it's a good time to take stock as we're starting to um, uh, go out and, and be in more large groups. And uh, we really haven't had large group settings um, for a good 18 months here. Um, as churches are reconvening, people are coming back. Um, to dust off those security plans. And um, it is important to know what you would do if an incident were to occur, whether it's a, uh, a shooting or another type of um, security threat. Um, there are a number of resources that um, uh, both nonprofits and, and government organizations make available, um, including um, on the Department of Homeland Security's website, there's training resources for how to protect houses of worship. So I'd really encourage you to even just go look at that, see what's appropriate. If you're a large church, you probably have more resources. You might have a budget to be able to hire somebody to help conduct that assessment for you, to help conduct training for your staff. Um, if you're a smaller church, you might not have those resources, but the, the government provides um, a protect, local uh, protective security advisors who can come and do that assessment. You, it probably will take some time for them uh, to get out to you. So sign up now so that you can get somebody uh, to come in and do that assessment for you and make some recommendations. We had a protective security advisor do an assessment of the Tree of Life Synagogue a few months before um, the tragic shooting happened three years ago. And the recommendations that they made that were implemented were are credited with saving dozens of lives. Um, so it's just things that you, you know, in your everyday um, work would may, might not think of that are kind of important to make sure that if an incident occurs, uh, you can um, save as many lives as possible. So there's the preventative side, um, there's uh, impor it's important if you see something, say something to work with your local law enforcement to have relationships there so, and, and make sure you have an open dialogue. So if you see somebody that is troubled, that needs help, uh, we can get them help before they commit an attack. And then the protective side, um, just we have to be sadly uh, prepared uh, for um, vulnerable people who might be mobilizing to violence for a variety of reasons. And there are things that you can do to um, try to reduce or mitigate the damage that might occur if, if you are subject to an attack. So again, I, I don't to scare anybody. The chances are very, very small, um, but it is an important thing uh, to, to take responsibility for to, to make sure that you are prepared in case that bad day happens. Absolutely. Um, thank you for that. I, uh, I will just tell you that when I look around and I see uh, churches, 501c3s, buying property in rural parts of the country, um, and and then hardening those places against the world and advertising that, you know, they've got gun ranges and putting up um, social media that, you know, here at, I'm looking at one now, this one's called, uh, this one's in Texas, and it's headed up by Pastor Huang Jin uh, Sean Moon. The members of the congregation refer to him as King, and they all have AR-15s in their pictures, and they have this 40-acre compound in central Texas uh, just outside of Waco. And I think to myself, 
there's a strange confluence of things going on right now. Um, and I, I guess I'm just wondering, you know, from your vantage point, from your viewpoint, um, like, are, are we are, are we going in a, in a bad direction in terms of the alignment of faith communities and, let's say, militarized? I mean, they go so far as to call themselves militias. Yeah, I mean, uh, so to be clear, when I was talking about protecting your church, it was not um, in an offensive way by going and setting up gun ranges. It's it's um, uh, more, <laughs> more um, that actually we, we do have a growing problem of what is called domestic terrorism or domestic violent extremism, as well as targeted violence, which just is um, uh, maybe a similar type of attack, but with an unknown motive or it's not ideologically driven. Um, the preponderance of attacks that have occurred in this country uh, have come from um, ideologies that uh, are aligned with either white supremacism or anti-government extremism. Um, there are a few uh, uh, on the what would be considered maybe the far left political spectrum, um, but those attacks are dwarfed in number compared to the number of attacks, the lethality of the attacks of the, those coming from uh, anti-government extremists and um, white supremacy. And so it makes me nervous uh, when we're already operating in this environment uh, where we're seeing significant, statistically significant increases over the last six years of violence, of plots, of people killed, um, and then this merger with the church when the church is supposed to be um, offering an alternative um, for conflict. Uh, you know, Jesus taught us to turn the other cheek. Um, he taught us to speak truth, but he did not teach us to take up weapons. In fact, he he told Peter, "Put away your sword." Um, this is we're our goal is not to take back the country on behalf of God. God has got this. Um, the the beauty about the church is that we're offering people um, uh, rest and refuge um, because the Lord is sovereign and he has everything under control, even whatever the country's outcome may be. So it makes me really uncomfortable to hear stories like what you shared. But um, can I also just say from a security perspective that private militias um, activity by private militias is outlawed in all 50 states. So the other thing that makes me concerned is it, it, it's totally legal to go and um, hang out with friends, shoot guns at a gun range, or even you know on private property, go run trainings if you want, that's legal. But the moment that you step out to do law enforcement activity um, in a private militia format, that is actually illegal in all 50 states. So I don't know that that's widely understood. I think a lot of people think that the Second Amendment offers um, uh, the ability to form a private militia, but um, there was a Supreme Court case about 10 years ago that um, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas uh, clarified that the, the militias that are referenced in the Second Amendment actually um, have to be under the governor's authority, and it primarily takes the form of the National Guard. So private militia are not protected under the Second Amendment. So as people of um, scripture, of people of the Bible, uh, we believe in, in um, obeying civilian authority. Romans 13 uh, uh, teaches us that. Um, so I would urge you to uh, be cautious. Um, I'm not saying don't enjoy your Second Amendment rights, but uh, a private militia are outlawed uh, everywhere. So um, that would be my, my please to please get that word out. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding right now. Elizabeth, um, thank you so much for, you know, for the 
the information, the clarification, the forecasting. Um, I hope we can talk with you again. This has been um, this has been very helpful and very rich. Where um, directly could we send people for the information that you talked about in terms of like best practices for protecting houses of worship? Yes. Um, so the the website's a little convoluted, but if you go to dhs.gov, dhs.gov, uh, type in uh, in their search engine safety for faith based events and houses of worship you will come to a page with their fact sheet. And and I'm happy to pass along the link to you, Carmen, if you want to put it in show notes. That's awesome. Let's do that. That's Elizabeth Newman. Um, Well, I hope you'll come back. She's with the Moonshot team. Um, You can find her also at the National Immigration Forum. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. It's always good to, um, to find out at 7.30 in the morning that your kid doesn't have school. <laughs> uh, it's apparently a parent-teacher day where I live. Um, what kind of day is it where you're living? All right, Gary Chapman joins us next. He is, I mean, we love him. We love him. Um, we love him from the five love languages. We love him from everything he's done over the course of our lives to shepherd us and counsel us and encourage us. He joins us today to talk about things I wish I knew before my child became a teenager. It's his latest book. He's going to just encourage us as parents and um, and what a joy that is. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews. This is Max Licato. Mordecai said those words. Though a Holocaust had been declared, Mordecai changed from desperate wailing to issuing this bold statement. What happened? Well, it dawned on Mordecai that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was alive and well and undefeated in battle. God had not forgotten his role as a covenant keeper. God's heart was still attached to his people, a remnant living in exile in Persia. The Jews had no king, no temple, no priesthood, no sacrifices, no matter. God is to problems what a hurricane is to a mosquito. No match. Mordecai got this. Do you? Yes, the journey ahead includes deep waters. But the scripture promises, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. This is Max Licato. Gary Chapman joins us now, among other things. He is the author of Things I Wish I Knew Before My Child Became a Teenager. You can find Gary and all his resources at the number 55lovelanguages.com. Gary, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Well, thank you, Carmen. It's good to be with you again. Well, it's wonderful to have you. So, um, all right, uh, let's see. What is parenting? That's, I think, the starting question of this conversation because There's just a lot of confusion in the culture today about the role, the responsibility of parents, the goal of parenting. So before we get into, like, things you wish you'd known before your child became a teenager, can we just talk about what is parenting? It's hard. (laughs) But, But I think the purpose of parenting is to help that child develop his or her potential Uh, as they grow up at every stage because they have potential at every stage and we want to help them reach that potential. And so as parents, uh, God has placed us, I think, responsible 
for helping that child develop. Because listen, when a child's born, they can do nothing for themselves. We have to do everything for them. And so I think he, we, our role is to protect them and to help guide them and help them develop the potential and the gifts that God has given them. Okay. And so with that in mind, um, when we talk about this transition that children make from childhood to adolescence and then to adulthood. Can you just talk about over time, maybe some of your observations about how that transition from childhood to adolescence to adulthood has changed? Well, I think it's extremely important, of course, uh, those, uh, those teenage years, because a lot of things are happening to the teenager uh, that have been going on for years. And that is the physical changes are taking place in their body. Uh, as well as the mind, the brain itself is kind of reprogramming things. Uh, So it's an important stage of life. I think uh, perhaps the major difference between this generation uh, and, you know, back when when I was a teenager or many other or years ago is uh, the whole advance in technology and information. Uh, I mean, it's just astounding when you think about what has happened uh, in that area. And so I think teens are dealing with that issue that a uh, former generation did not deal with. All right, so let's jump into the contents of, uh, of the book. Again, we're talking with Gary Chapman about things I wish I'd known before my child became a teenager. Um, Gary, that is to say your kids are not teenagers anymore, so, um, so we could talk about that. Um, when, you, when you think about what, is, um, what you've included here in the book, I thought that the social skills part well, and maybe this is reflective of what's going on in my own family. I thought the learning the social skills part was really, really important. And then I also thought the learning how to apologize and forgive. So can you just talk about what's in here and uh, maybe highlight a few things from the book? Sure. Uh, Let me just start with that social skills issue. Uh, You know, I think it is more difficult today to teach uh, teenagers uh, social skills because of technology. Because as we all know, uh, many in the teen world, of course, it's true in the adult world as well, <laughs> would rather text a message than to talk to a person. Uh, and those two are very, very different in terms of, of social skills. So, yeah, so we talk about some of those social skills. Uh, one, of course, is teaching that teenager to learn to have an attitude of, of gratitude. Uh, you know, sometimes it's easy for a teenager to think about parents. Well, you're here to do everything for me. Give me everything I want, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and they don't have gratitude for what they already have, when in reality, uh, they are greatly blessed. Uh, even the poorest of people in our country are blessed beyond measure uh, compared to uh, some folks in other nations. So uh, an attitude of gratitude. And in every one of these things I talk about, how do you, how do you develop that? Uh, for example, just one simple idea that I share is have the teenager go into their room or a room in the house with a sheet of paper and write down five things in that room that they appreciate. Okay, maybe they probably mm-hmm. haven't done that in a long time. And maybe the next day, ask them to go back and add two more things. And then you move from things to relationships. So you give that teenager a sheet of paper and say, I want you to write down three things that you appreciate about each member of our family. You know, dad, mom, if they have siblings, their names, just three things you appreciate about them. Then come back as a family and let them share those things and let everybody share it. Let the parents do it also. Uh, and it's just saying, this is important in our family. We want to appreciate each other. We want to express that to each other. So, you know, and we, we go on to talk about the skill of asking questions. 
which is extremely important in the personal relationships. If we learn, if a teen learns how to ask questions of other people, and I'm not necessarily talking so much about uh, questions about knowledge, though that's certainly important, but expressing an interest in the other person. I'm talking about now their, their friends at school. To ask them things about, you know, what is your earliest memory uh, when you look back on your life? Uh, they probably never have asked that question of, of another teenager. Uh, what's been the hardest thing in your life growing up? Or, but what's been one of the most exciting things you've ever done? Just, you know, teaching them how to ask questions, expressing interest in other people. This is what builds relationships. So, yeah, we deal with uh, several other social skills. Uh, but you also mentioned the apology and forgiveness thing. There can be no healthy long-term relationships if we don't learn to apologize and forgive. And the reason I say that is because none of us are perfect. And if we don't learn how to deal with our imperfections, that is our failures, and the only way we can healthy deal with those is to acknowledge them, you know, apologize to them. And we talk about what it means to apologize. And then if the other, the other person must choose to forgive us, forgiveness is a choice. And so they must learn not only how to apologize, but they must also be willing to forgive the person and understand who has, who has hurt them and understand what forgiveness is and what forgiveness does and does not do. Uh, so uh, that's a huge area uh, for a teenager. And of course, it starts with the parents. <laughs> we can talk about that later. Uh, but I think uh, parents also need to learn how to apologize. Uh, mom to dad, dad to mom, but also parents to children because we're yeah. not perfect parents either. You know, we have to deal with our failures. Well, and that gets into the conversation about modeling, what we're modeling and what, what yeah. they are seeing in us, not just what we are saying to them. All right, Gary Chapman and I are going to continue this conversation in just a moment. We're talking about his brand new book, Things I Wish I'd Known Before My Child Became a Teenager. We'll be right back. Yeah. We all recognize that um, our kids have a lot of counter influences from the culture pressing in upon them, influencing them today. We recognize their deep need to feel seen and loved. Um, we also recognize that we're responsible for um, helping them to develop uh, who they are and abilities like thinking logically um, or serving joyfully. Uh, we certainly recognize we have the responsibility to guide and direct them when it comes to spiritual matters and life skills. All of those things are addressed in Gary Chapman's new book, Things I Wish I'd Known Before My Child Became a Teenager. Um, Gary, when you think about who we are as parents with teenagers in our homes, talk about, you know, the need for the for the guide to be a good guide for, uh, for the person, you know, seeking to do the teaching to be well taught for the person seeking to spiritually direct to actually be a person who's following Christ's spiritual direction. There's a pattern here. There's a modeling here. Yeah. And I think, uh, and I deal with this in the book that, uh, the parents model is more powerful and more influential in the teen's life than even the words that we say to them. And the greater the gap between what we verbalize to them that we believe and we think is true and right, uh, and the greater the gap between what we say we believe and the way we live, 
that makes it more difficult for the teen to respect us and to take seriously what we're saying. And again, I want to go back and say, we don't have to be perfect as parents, but we do have to deal with our failures. Even in my own life, one of the biggest areas where I discovered this was in the whole area of handling my own anger. Uh, I remember my teenage son uh, was yelling and screaming at me. And I backed off later and asked myself, where did he learn that? And I realized he learned it from me because I raised my voice at him. I spoke harshly to him. He was just doing what he saw me do. And I had to apologize to him and say, Derek, I I, I need to tell you, I am sorry for the way I've talked to you. I realize I I don't handle my anger really well. And and it's not acceptable for a father to yell and scream at a son. I mean, I just poured my heart out to him and apologized to him. And, uh, you know, when I was willing to apologize to him, uh, he he was willing to acknowledge his failure. You know, Dad, I shouldn't talk to you that way. And then we just said, I said, Derek, why don't we just learn together how how to talk our way through anger rather than yelling our way through anger? So the next time you're angry, just tell me, Dad, I'm I'm feeling angry. Can we talk? And I'll listen to you. And if I feel angry, I'll just say to you, Derek, I'm feeling angry. Can we talk? And let's learn how to talk. And it was a turning point, a huge turning point. So uh, I hope parents hear what I'm saying is we don't have to be perfect. But if we're willing to apologize when we do fail and our model is not what we'd like to see in them, uh, then, you know, we're, we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, we can't be. Uh, we're not yet perfect, right? This is not. This right. is not the side of, uh, of 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 death that's perfect. Um, and so, but we are perfecting, right? If they see us pursuing Christ and they hear us praying um, humble prayers of confession, and they receive um, us demonstrating asking for forgiveness, acknowledging our sin, um, and repenting, actually turning, actually changing, um, that's a that's a stronger testimony than, um, you know, than here's the list of things that you need to believe and do uh, in order to be a good person. Yeah. You know, uh, the most sobering question I've ever asked myself is what if my teenager turns out to be like me? Hmm. What if they drive a car the way I drive a car? What if they handle anger the way I handle anger? What if they treat their spouse later on when they get married the way I treat my spouse? I mean, yeah, I can just go on, you know, with those kind of questions. And it's sobering, but it, it helps the parent recognize areas where they need to grow. You know, as adults, we're continually growing. We're getting better or we're getting worse. We don't stand still. And it's asking questions like this, uh, looking at our teenagers and, and asking, you know, what if they turned out to be like me? And then if not, we're not happy with that. Then what do I need to change? And God's into the business of changing. <laughs> you know, he wants to help us move uh, toward living, living in the way that we would be happy if our children turned out to be like us. So, Gary, when you talk about the fact that we're always moving, um, there there are forces moving us, and there are certainly forces um, influencing our teenagers that just they weren't they didn't exist, and so they didn't influence us when we were teenagers. Can you talk a little bit about the cultural influences um, that teens are subject to today? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. There's there's tremendous pressure on teenagers today. Uh, the whole what they cons- what is available to them, you know, if they have a phone and, and on their computers, what is available to them today, was never ever available to to former generations. And some of that's good because you know you can just with a uh, clicking the right button, you can learn all kind of things, <laughs> good information. 
and uh, it can be good for communication. You know, you can FaceTime your child wherever they are, that sort of thing uh, during the teenage years. But there needs to be guidelines because uh, technology can consume all of our free time. And when that happens as the teenage years, they will carry that into adulthood. If they, for example, are into video games and all their free time they spend playing video games, they'll still be doing that when they're 23 and 24 and when they get married. And it will not be well for a marriage, I'm telling you. So I think as parents, we have to put guidelines for ourselves and for our teenagers. And so, you know, we, we love technology and we're going to use it in a positive way. But we're not going to spend all of our time uh, looking at a screen. And so here's the guidelines. For, just for example, at the dinner table, our phones are not going to be, we're not going to answer our phones. The TV is going to be off. We're going to do two things around the dinner table. We're going to eat food and we're going to talk to each other and talk, share what, what, about what's going on in our lives. And I suggest that parents have a list of questions and every night they ask a question or two that the whole family can discuss. You're, you're not only getting to know your child and then getting to know you, but you're teaching them social skills. You teach them how to carry on conversation and discuss issues. So, yeah, the pressures are there uh, to pull them in negative ways, but we, we need to think in terms of guidelines, both for ourselves uh, and for the teenager. That's so helpful. I, uh, you know, I, I think about um, the kids in my home. Um, they are going to... I mean, it, it's it's well established. I mean, we sit down at dinner together. The table is set. Um, we all sit down. We all enjoy a meal together. There is a discussion. The table is cleared. We all sit back down at the table. You know, there is a, a brief a devotional time, and then we play some games, cards, dominoes, Scrabble, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, whatever, whatever everybody wants to play. And um, uh, it would never occur to to them to bring a phone to that table, because that's not who's at that table, and that's not what's going on at that table. But that is a pattern that we established before they had phones. Yeah, it's, it's, it's always easier to establish those kind of patterns when they're children, before they get yeah. to be teenagers. You know? it's, it's hard uh, to take it just, away. You're right. But, but they will resist. If you've never done that before, they will resist. But you let them know, listen, you know, I want you to have the best possible life. And the decisions that we make as parents in terms of what we do and don't do is because we love you. And, and when they begin mm-hmm. to experience what you just described, you know, sitting around the table talking, playing games and all, uh, then their resistance will melt because they enjoy what's going on. Yeah, that's, there's no question about that. Absolutely. Because they feel loved because we're valuing their time and we're showing interest in them and vice versa. Yeah. And so it's, yeah, it's all really good. Um, all right. So much great uh, content uh, in things I wish I'd known before my child became a teenager. You can connect with Gary Chapman and all of the Love Languages resources at five. That's the number five, lovelanguages.com. Gary, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Carmen. It was good to be with you. Keep up the good work. Thank you. We'll be right back. All right. So today I want you to tell the story. Tell the story. Find someone and tell them the story. And you're saying, what story? What story do you want me to tell? Well, don't we love to tell the story of how God has changed our life in Jesus Christ? So, answer this question. 
What is God doing in your life? What is God actively doing in your life right now? And tell that story. Tell that story. Talk about the setting and the context and the characters and the point of tension and the rising conflict and the resolution. Tell the story. Let us be people who love to tell the story of where God is present and active and working in our lives. One of Jim, my husband, one of his observations over the weekend has been Jesus pointing out that the Father is at work. Jesus says, I'm at work because my Father is at work. God is at work today in your life, on your behalf, in the context of human history, working out his purposes over time toward this redemptive end. God's on the job. Let's us be on the job as well as his ambassadors. Let's love to tell the story today. Thanks for being with me. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.